And I'll tell you what, before we get started tonight, as I'm fixing this uh, stand right here uh, and trying to figure out why the top comes right off of it, what I'd like you to do is to, uh, I'd like you to find somebody near you and uh, then you can just uh, talk to them a little bit about, tell them about a time that you've experienced grace in your life, okay? Tell them about a time you've experienced grace. You've got about two minutes, so chat with one another. Okay, thanks. Hopefully you found out a few things about uh, one another there. This stand, uh, this stand may not make it. <laughs> Honestly, that stand needs to go see Jesus. I think it's about gone. Uh, oh, well, we'll go with that one. If it falls apart, I'll be gracious. Uh, so, uh, okay, we've been in a series for the last couple of months called Written for Your Instruction. And, and really what we've tried to look at, it's based off of a verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 where he says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for your instruction. And so one of the questions I have for you that I want you to begin to think about a little bit tonight is, why does God give us these examples in the Old Testament? Why, why does he do that? Why does he provide these stories? Why does he provide these characters? Why does he give us these examples? And that's not a rhetorical question. I really want you to answer it. So uh, what do you think? Why does he do that? Yeah, Jonathan. Kind of let us know that we're not alone in making mistakes. Yeah, yeah. There are people that do things right in the Bible, by the way, just in case you're wondering. You know, it's like, it's not like total mistake after mistake. So it's not like that, yeah. But yeah, you know, that is one of the reasons. I mean, you know, let you know. Yeah, there's other people that are goofy. Yeah, Matt. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. Can you, you know, when you're talking to Jesus, can you imagine the conversation with Jesus? You know when you've gotten in trouble? No. No, I mean, like just when you disobey, huh? <laughs> and you're like, you know, like you don't clean up your, huh? And you're like, oh, man. You know, I mean, you just kind of walk out. Yeah, if that's the only one you had to relate to, you'd kind of like bummer. You know, I mean, uh, he's perfect. I'm not. So uh, anything else? What do you think? What do you think? Yeah. Ian. Do you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give us some patterns. Give us some things so we have, uh, so we have perspective. Um, we can figure that out. Why, why else? Anything else? Anything else you guys can think of? What else we do? Yeah. Say it again, Colin. Like the need of Jesus. Our need, yeah, to show us our need of Jesus. That's right, Connor. Just to show us, you know, how much we need him, you know. Um, part, of, part of the thing, too, I look at, um, we can really learn from them. We can really benefit from them uh, because one of the reasons we can is because we live in a cause-effect world. I mean, you know what? Um, you find that things they were going through, things they experienced, are many times the same sort of things we experience. Now, we would have nothing to learn from them if we didn't live in a cause-effect world. Had you thought about that? I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things. There's sayings that we have that help us to understand that. You've probably heard some of these things. You can help me complete these things like uh, what goes around comes around. Yeah, we know that, don't we? Or uh, you reap what? Yeah, yeah. You get what you deserve. Yeah. Everybody goes, oh, good news and bad news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you look, and because there's the cause-effect world, there are things that we can be kind of sure of. I mean, you know, can you imagine if it wasn't, if it was just a random universe? 
I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, so like, how many are skiers? We have many skiers oh, in here? Yeah. Oh, yeah, skiers here. Now, what if, what if you, now I'm talking snow skiing. You know, if you're a water skier, you'll have to, you know, think about something differently. But if you're a snow skier and you had this idea, okay, you know what? When I go out there and I get on the slopes, you know what I need to do? I need to kind of lean into this thing. Because, you know, you had learned from others. And they told you to lean in. And so you did that. And sure enough, you went right down the hill and you did really well. But what if you got on the next time and you started to lean in and you found out, uh-oh, no, this time you have to lean back like you're water skiing. And you thought, how do you know when? And you don't. You just keep hitting trees and stuff like that. I mean, just mess you up. Or what about brakes on your car? What if you hit them one time and they stopped you? You hit them the next time you accelerated. Yeah. You kind of go, oh, no. I mean, you kind of wonder which ones. And you go, that's awfully hard to conceptualize, you know, because you hit brakes, you stop. No, that's cause effect. But if you live in a random world, that's not like that. You live in a random world, you hit the brakes, you may accelerate, you may go right into the back of somebody. And you're like, oh no, yeah. Cause effect is one of those things that we really um, appreciate, we really like it. Until you realize some other things, like you realize cause effect, you think, okay, cause effect, um, we um, all tend to have a tendency to sin. And we know that sin requires a payment. Hmm. Now cause effect doesn't seem as appealing. You know, now we look at it, we're kind of like, bummer. I like random. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of like something different there, you know, because we look at that and we're thinking, hmm, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not sure I, you know, not sure I like it. Well, years ago, years and years and years ago, God introduced a concept in the world that was totally different. In fact, it took all the cause-effect people by surprise. They were kind of like, hey, what the heck's happening? And all this was was a concept called grace. And that's what we're going to spend some time looking at tonight. Most people, most people are fairly baffled by grace. I mean, you know, they'll talk about it all day long, and they'll talk about it means this, it's about this, this is what occurs. But in reality, they're fairly baffled by it. And the reason they are is they keep getting tripped up over the same question. What did I do to deserve this? What, I mean, surely I had to have done something. Surely God was up there going, oh, there's a good, I'll draft him first. Yeah, he's good. I could use him. Or, boy, there she is. Oh, I need more people like her in heaven. Yeah. And we kind of think, you know, surely there was something we did, something that, you know, sometimes, sometimes grace makes us a little uneasy because we really like to feel like we deserve things. Like if, if you were standing up right now, like say at a break, and you were telling somebody, you know, hey, let me tell you about this scholarship that I was rewarded. And boy, you're just telling them, you know, man, there were all these people that applied and, and I got this. And somebody else walks up and goes, they just gave that to you. They gave it out to everybody that day. Do you go, oh, wow, that makes me feel so much better. I, I, I mean, you feel that way? Or do you want to punch the person and then, you know, you think, you know, take them outside, whack them. I mean, yeah, you sit there, you think, no, we like to feel like we've earned something. We like to feel like, man, that's, that's kind of room temperature for us. You know, we think, yeah, I got that, you know. Now, I'll tell you what, if you think it upsets you that you don't earn something, boy, inside of you, there's a real problem when someone else gets something that you know they don't deserve. Have you ever seen that happen to anybody? Especially if it's like a sibling of yours? Oh. 
Now, what do you tell your parents when that happens? That's not what? Fair, Fair, yeah. That's a talk for another night. Um, But, you know, yeah, you know, we we really do that. Two things I want us to understand about grace, and if you can get these down, we're going to review these later and come back on them, but two things. One, if we do not understand grace, if we do not understand grace, we won't know how to relate to God, nor will we be at peace as we do. We won't know how to relate to God. And even if we do, we really won't be at peace as we do. There'll just still be some turmoil in there if we don't understand what grace is about. Secondly, when correctly understood and applied, grace will revolutionize every relationship in your life. When correctly understood and applied, grace will revolutionize every relationship in your life. And so the thing I want us to see about grace is this. Grace is a gift of God. You cannot earn it and you don't deserve it. It is a gift of God. You can't earn it, you don't deserve it. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story of grace in the Old Testament and we're going to see how this is lived out. And so let me just kind of paint uh, the picture for you. So you, you kind of had this. Thousands of years ago, there was a about 3,800 or so, uh, maybe a few more, uh, years ago, there was a guy named Abraham, and uh, this guy Abraham had a son, and his son was named Jacob, uh, who was later named Israel. But um, Jacob, um, Jacob was a guy that um, he had a blended family. He had several wives along with a few others, and and so, you know, he had all of these sons. He had 12 boys, okay? So, uh all of these guys were there. Now, his favorite were two boys uh, by his wife that he really, you know, uh, loved and stuff named Rachel. And his, uh, his two boys, one was named Joseph and one was named Benjamin. And I mean, some of you have probably come from that. And we won't talk about it tonight because we don't have people here to give you therapy. But, uh, you know, there's a, you know, you've probably had that with some of your siblings where, you know, they're why did they get that? And I didn't get that. You know, why, what's up with that? You know, I mean, and all of you that are older, you always go, the younger ones get treated differently. I'm telling you, that's how it is. They're spoiled. I was never spoiled like that. I walked to school uphill both ways in the snow with the sun beating down on me. I mean, it was, it was bad. You know, I mean, and you're like, yeah, sure, sure. You know, I mean, I've heard all those stories for years. You know, people talking about, oh man, I, my parents. You know, and you know, all they gave me was a stick of bread, and I was thankful for that. You know, and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's kind of you know the way Joseph's brothers felt, you know, I mean, Joseph, for the most part, if you read the scriptures and and I'd encourage you to do that, it's a really helpful thing. But if you get in there, one of the things you'll find is Joseph was really a pretty good guy. I mean, in fact, he was a very good guy. He did kind of mouth off a little much, you know, and which his brothers didn't appreciate. Now, if you've had siblings, you understand that, you know, he kind of, you know, would say things and people didn't appreciate it. So We'll see the first one of those when, when he's younger. Now, his dad, his dad spoils him, okay? His dad, like, you know, makes him these coats. In fact, you've probably seen the play, Joseph and the Technicolor, you know, coat and stuff. Yeah, he had all the, the very colored coat and stuff like that, kind of, you know, a Michael Jackson outfit or something, you know. But he was, uh, he was wearing that thing around. So his dad did all sorts of things, didn't do it for the other boys. The other 11 boys were not all that pleased with him. And so he would say things like this. So if you look in um, Genesis... Back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter uh, 37, 
beginning of verse 6, and it says this. And he said to them, he's talking to his brothers one day and his dad. And he said to them, please listen to this dream that I had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in a field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And then he goes, what do you think that means? And his brothers go, I hate him. You know, and they're just like, ah. And he would tell these dreams and stuff, you know, and his dad's kind of like pipe down, pipe down, you know, and he's like, so his, his brothers, I mean, they just want to go do something just to get away from him, you know. So they're like, okay, let's go take care of the sheep. Now, everyone wants to do that. So, uh, you know, they all go out and they're taking care of the sheep and they're tending the sheep and stuff. And one day his dad says this, his dad says, hey, why don't you go out and visit your brothers and see how they're doing and check in on them and stuff like that. And, you know, Joseph, hey, can I wear my uh, Michael Jackson coat? Yeah, you can. So he puts that on, you know, and he goes over, scoops the thing up, you know, and he starts heading out. And he goes, and his brothers begin to see him coming. They look up in the distance, and they're like, is, is that Joseph and his other brothers? Who else could that be who has clothes like that? Okay, that's, that's him. Yeah, that's him. You know, so he starts walking up. And then you find on, here's what they say next in... Um, in, um, where are we here? In verse uh, 19, 19 to 20. He says, and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him. Throw him into the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. Now see, his brothers, as you can see, uh, they're not thinking good thoughts towards him. You know? Their thought is, hey, I know what we can do. Let's just kill him. Then we don't have to deal with it anymore. And so, you know, one of his other brothers, Reuben, kind of jumps in and goes, hey, 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 let's not kill him. I mean, what if we just throw him in a pit? Yeah, and just leave him to starve to death. Yeah, let's do that. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. And so, you know, they all kind of agree and stuff. And then you have uh, Judah and Judah steps up, and Judah's like, you know, no, no, no. He said, let's, let's not do that. He said, actually, um, I'll tell you what we can do. In fact, if you look in verse 26, he says, um, what profit is it to us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? I know. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. Of course you will. When you're thinking, kill him or make money for him. That's what we'll do. We'll sell him. And so that's what they do. They sell him to some Midianites that are coming along. And then right there in verse 28, it says, Some Midianite traders passed by, and they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now what you begin to see here is, as this goes on, they go back home and they have this story. They've taken this goat and they've put blood all over the coat that he had. And they bring it back and they go, hey, uh, dad, you know, guess what? We found a coat out there that looks just like our brother's. And his dad goes, well, he, he was supposed to be out there to see you. And they go, yeah, but did you put all this red on here? Look at that. You know, and his dad's like, oh, man, he's been devout. His dad goes, oh, I'm going to go down to the grave. In sorrow, you know, because he's so sad that his favorite son has died. And, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do. And the boys don't know what to do either because they see their, grand, their dad grieving and they, they feel guilty. 
and they've all got to keep the secret, and they've all got to wonder what happens if one of the others tells the secret. And especially, you know, Judah, because he's thinking, I'm the one who came up with the idea to sell him. And so they're, they're going back and forth and, you know, trying to figure out. And if you begin to read in the scriptures from that point forward, Judah and Joseph take very divergent paths. You start reading about Joseph and what you find is this. He goes down and while he's in uh, Egypt, he gets sold to a guy named Potiphar who is like one of the heads of the army there. And he comes in and because of his giftedness and because of his leadership and because he's just a really quality guy that works hard, Potiphar puts him over the whole house. And I mean, he's in charge of everything. And Potiphar's wife notices this and, you know, she's like, hey, maybe we should hang out more together and stuff. So she keeps trying to hit on Joseph all the time. And we don't really know. I mean, you know, she may have been, you know, like, you know, Miss America or she may have just been like, you know, Miss Potiphar. Uh, and we don't really know. All we know is that, you know, uh, she was hitting on Joseph all the time. And Joseph is kind of like, yeah, no, thank you. No, thanks. And uh, finally, you know, she, she gets so upset with this that she tells her husband, he did try to attack me. And her husband's, oh, he's furious. So he has him thrown into prison. And what you find in prison is that because of his faithfulness, because of his giftings, because of his leadership, because of his character, he gets promoted to be over all of the prison. And he's in charge of everything in the prison. But he's still in prison. And then one day, the Pharaoh has a dream. And nobody can interpret the dream. And one of the guys who'd been in prison with uh, Joseph and remembered that he could do that, he comes back and says, well, hey, there's this guy in prison. And so Joseph comes out, and in the morning he wakes up a prisoner, and by evening he is second in command of the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And all because of his way of conducting himself, his character, his giftedness, leadership, everything else. Now his brother Judah, different story. Different story. You watch Judah, and Judah, he kind of separates himself from his brothers. He kind of pulls away, goes away to another place, finds a gal from uh, that area, marries her, has three sons, most of them worthless. And um, so, I mean, it's true. You read about him, you know, it's just kind of bad. So he finds this girl, Tamar, who wants to marry one of his sons. And because his son is so evil, God kills him. And so, therefore, you know, he now has two sons. And as the custom was then, if you uh, had a brother and his wife died and he didn't have any kids, then you would marry his wife and have kids for him. And so, you know, the next boy in line marries Tamar. But, you know, he's evil. God kills him. And so um, now he's down to his last son. And Tamar says, well, I guess I'm marrying him. And he goes, <clears throat> not yet. <laughs> Yeah, he kind of knows what that son's like, too. And he goes, let's wait on this a little while. Uh, you know, he said, but don't worry. I'll take care of this as soon as he's old enough. He's kind of a young kid now. And, you know, you want an older guy. So as soon as he's a little bit older, then you can marry him. So she goes, okay. So she goes off to live in her house and stuff, and they wait. Years and years go by. One day... They're having their spring sheep shearing thing where they all go down to the thing. And so as they're all going down there, here, here goes Judah down to shear sheep with the other guys, you know, and they're all going to go down and go to the pub and stuff like that. And so as they're on their way down, he sees this girl that's standing over here and she's kind of 
dressed in uh, these veils and stuff like that. And he kind of stops by and visits with her and thinks, you know, hey, you know, swipe right. And so uh, he does. And uh, the next thing you know, uh, he kind of hooks up with her. And uh, yeah, I know they didn't have that back then, but if they did, he would have done that. Um, so, you know, he does. And so he kind of connects with her. And the next thing you know, you know, he finds out, uh-oh, my daughter-in-law is pregnant. Now, whenever he first hooks up with her, you know, she, she kind of says, well, let me see, um, what's this worth? And he goes, well, I'll give you a sheep. And she goes, how do I mean, do you have any sheep with you? And he well, not with me. I mean, you know, and she goes, well, what, how am I going to know this? He goes, well, here, you know, I'll give you this ring and I'll give you this, uh, I'll give you this cane and stuff. And you'll, so now, you know, I'll be back with the sheep. And so she's like, okay. And so, you know, so they do. And uh, anyway, he finds out Tamar's pregnant. And he comes up and he says, uh, I cannot believe you have been such a prostitute. Oh my gosh. You will be brought out and stoned. And she goes, it's true. And the one who got me pregnant is the one who owns this ring. And, then, and he goes, uh-oh. Yeah, that's who Judah is. I mean, you look at Judah and you're kind of thinking, he's not winning any prizes. I mean, he'd probably like Mrs. Potiphar. You know, I mean, he's just not the kind of guy you're thinking, no, nah, he's, he's not doing well. He's publicly humiliated. He's got several things going with him. He goes back and life goes on. You begin to look at life as it continues on and you're like, wow, what in the world? Two very different guys. A famine breaks out in the land. Joseph, because he's so wise, has already scheduled all this grain to be held back. And so everybody's taken care of. When his brothers and his father began to starve to death, they go down to Egypt. And when they go down to Egypt, he gives them grain. They still don't recognize him because the Egyptians wore lots of makeup and stuff like that, especially if you were in the court. Finally, one day, he reveals himself to his brothers, tells them, it's me, it's Joseph. And uh, that, you find that in uh, chapter 49 um, of uh, Genesis. And he says, um, no, wait, am I at the right place? Yeah. Yeah. Nope, not chapter 49. Where am I at here? Well, I'll just tell you. I'll tell you about it later. Anyway, what happens is this. He goes in, he reveals himself to him. So he tells them all about it. And, you know, they're like amazed. The whole family moves down. He gives them all places to live. Everybody's there. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a great place. Then finally, Jacob. Jacob now is getting really old. And as he's about to die, he begins to pass on blessings. Now, the way the customs work, he could give the firstborn like a double portion of everything in the inheritance. In fact, he could designate that for anybody. That was his right. Now, who do you think all the brothers think is going to get everything? Joseph. Yeah. Everybody's going, here it comes. He got the coat. He got everything else. You know what he's going to get. He's going to get everything. You know what we're going to get? We're going to get like, you can have the piece of wool that was left over. You know what I mean? That's what we're going to get. We're going to get anything. And the dad begins to roll things out. And then this is what he says in Genesis 49. He goes through. He begins to pass out these blessings. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, he dares rouse, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What you see is this. Judah is the one, the 12 sons of Jacob, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of the kings that rise up from them, from that point forward, are from one tribe, Judah. In fact, ultimately, the king of kings is the one who comes out of that tribe, Jesus. Now you look at that, you think, what did, what did Judah do to deserve that? Nothing. What did he do to earn that? Absolutely nothing. It was purely by grace. God wanted us to learn a lesson from that. What he wanted us to learn was something that for centuries people have been screwing up over and over and over. And that is he doesn't relate to us out of what we do for him. He relates to us out of what he's done for us. He relates to us out of grace. It's a totally different concept, and it's one that's really messed up in our minds a lot of times. And Judah's like that. I mean, Judah, you look in Matthew's gospel, and as he's recording the genealogy of Jesus, one of the people mentioned there is Judah. He begins to write about, you know, Judah. In fact, he mentions some others, really interesting characters, Tamar, you know, others that uh, you're, you're like Bathsheba. Others, you're like, really? Yeah, all those are in Jesus' lineage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You begin to look always. And I can't help but think that, you know, as Matthew was writing that, he probably thought, you know, I've experienced that. You know, I know what that's about. Because Matthew thought, you know, I remember being in the tax booth. <laughs> everybody hating me. Everybody kind of passing by and saying, you cannot come to life group tonight. Don't even try. You know what I mean? You know, he just, you know, he was looked at. He, no one liked him at all. No one invited him to anything. You know, they had a party. They wanted to watch the game. They didn't invite him. You know why? Because he was busy stealing their money. He was busy doing all kinds of things. They hated him. And yet one day Jesus passes by and says, follow me. And he gets up and his whole life is different. And I'm sure as Matthew was looking at that, he must have thought, about that. Some of you, I am sure that some of you, you know, because of your background or because of kind of where you come from, you probably think, you know, I am precluded from being used by God very much, or, you know, I probably won't experience much of God's grace. But if you look at Judah or you look at Matthew, boy, you see pictures in the scripture. God says, that's readily available for everybody. In fact, Paul says this for us in Ephesians 2. One through nine, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He says, You know what? Every one of us was in the same place. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us two verses that we all hang our entire trust on. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. When God shows us how he's going to deal with sin and rebellion in us, the thing that he shows us again and again is grace. Now, I said earlier, um, if we don't understand grace, we won't know how to relate to God, and we really won't be at peace. And I know what we're going to cover in the next few minutes, you know, if you don't really pay attention much any other time, I'd encourage you to pay attention because this is where a lot of people really get tripped up in the area of grace. If you correctly understand it and apply it, it'll change your relationships. And if you correctly understand it and live it out, you will really know how to relate to God. But here's the problem. Um, how, does, um, how, does, how does that work? How does understanding grace show us how to relate to God? Well, there's, there's a couple of problems. There's a couple of ways that grace gets distorted in our minds. Now, you may have had this problem or you may have seen someone else that has this problem, but a couple of different ways. One of the ways grace gets distorted is we know we live in a cause-effect world. So we kind of think things are really kind of by the merit system. In fact, everything else is by the merit system. How many of you went into class this week and said, hey, didn't get my homework in, didn't study for the test, and I'm planning on being absent tomorrow? And the teacher said, hey. <laughs> that happened to anybody? No. No. How many of you have gone into the bank and said, look, the withdrawal was for 100 I had seven in my account. But, you know, I kind of thought you would be good for 93 And had the bank go, not a problem. See ya. Anybody have that happen? No. You know why? We live in a very merit-based world. Guess what? If you put things in they want you to only take that much out. If you don't study, you don't get the grade. If you wreck the car, you don't get to drive. I mean, there's just things that happen like that across the board. It's just a very, in fact, you don't get much more help if you look at other religions. Have you noticed that? You start looking at many of them and what you find is there, there's a treasury of merit. There, there's all these different things that it's partly what Jesus did, but then you need to also do these other works so you can kind of balance it out. And see, there's this distorted view in our mind that part of this is about grace and part of this is about works. And you've probably wondered some of that yourself. You've probably sat around sometimes and thought, well, isn't some of it? We'll talk about that. Uh, you know, the, uh, the second thing is this. Sometimes we tend to think that all that grace is about is coming to know Jesus. That's it. 
And that really what grace does is it is just mistaken for total freedom, just licentiousness. You know, just whatever it is that you want to do, you can do whatever you want. In fact, you can do whatever you want and you're free to sin and there are no consequences because we live under grace. And you'll see people that live that out. You'll see people that really believe that. In fact, if you begin to emphasize things like you say, well, we ought to really obey what God says or we ought to, we ought to do good works, they go, legalist. Oh, I'm a legalist? Yes, you're a legalist because you want me to obey. You're like, oh, bummer, I didn't know that. You know? Or if you warn them, you know, hey, you, you have kind of a sloppy view of sin, you know, and, and God's probably going to discipline you if you continue on in that. You know what they say is, I'm not into the rules kind of religion. I am just free to do whatever I want. And you're like, oh. Now, some of you are going, I can't believe people think that. Others of you are thinking, I think that. You know, so, uh, you know, I understand. See, we have both of those misconceptions. Here's the thing. Get this. God's grace first saves us, but then God's grace trains us to be like him in character and in deeds. It has two things that grace does. It saves us, but it also trains us. It's not just good for one and not good for the other. Now, some people have described God's grace as kind of like God's unmerited favor towards us. And that's not a bad definition. It's just an incomplete one. It's also that God gives us the power to do things by his grace that we would have never been able to do apart from him doing that. He gives us the power to be able to do that. Now, if you want to see both of those things lived out, God's power to save us and God's power to train us, you look at the book of Titus. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So you look in verse 11, he says, one of the very first things that grace does, it brings us salvation. That's one of the very first things. And, and you know, we're grateful for that. I mean, God gives us salvation. But then you look in the next verse, it says, he trains us to say no to ungodliness. And actually the word that's used there, the word that's instructing, it's the same word that's used for child rearing. It, it's, it's a word, it means teaching, it means correcting, it means disciplining. See, God, by his grace, doesn't just save you. God, by his grace, teaches you. He corrects you. He disciplines you. There are things that he wants you to do, and there's things that he's not. You know, and then he, he trains us. You look at verse 13 and 14. It says he trains us to live in godliness by looking forward and by looking back. He trains us to, to live in godliness by looking forward. First of all, we began to look at the glory that's out before us, and we began to think, wow, in light of the fact I'm going to live a very short life, and then I'm going to be with God for all eternity, which is like a stinking long time. 
you begin to look at that, you think, in light of that, I probably ought to choose to live differently. You know, as one guy said, you ought to live every day like your next step is into heaven. You know, just with that thought in mind, you know, just always looking ahead. But then it's also lived by looking back. You look back with gratitude to God for what he's done in bringing you to himself in the first place. And if you begin to live life like that, where you understand that grace is not only about coming to Jesus, but grace is about being trained to actually walk with him and be the person he wants you to be, then you're not confused in your relationship with God. You're not walking around sometimes going, I thought this was all about grace. Why is God spanking me? Well, have you been disobedient? Yeah, but it's all about grace. I'm not into that rules thing. Well, God is. So, you know, he's into rules. No, not many rules, but he is into you being his child. And he would be a very bad parent if he didn't discipline you. And you're like, oh. You mean, doesn't he just want me to be happy? No, he's not that kind of parent. That's called a weird parent. You know, that's not what he's about, you know. What he's in is for you to really be responsible. In fact, he wants you to be like him. And you're like, one of those. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you begin to relate to God and it begins to make a lot more sense why he does things he does and why he doesn't do other things. Because it's not all about just what we want. Then you find also it really makes a difference in your relationship with others. When you understand grace right, that it's not just about that, it's about your entire life. It makes a difference in your relationships with others. In Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, he talks about how that works. He says, it impacts three things. It impacts your words, it impacts your attitudes, and it impacts your actions. Have you ever thought about, like someone says to you, you ought to, you ought to practice grace with other people. Have you heard people tell you things like that? And you ever thought about, what the heck does that mean? Like, do I need to go die for people today? I mean, what, what does that mean, you know? Or does that just mean that I should be like a doormat? And like, you know, someone says, hey, by the way, I just uh, robbed your house. And you go, hey, here's the car too, thanks. You know what I mean? Is that what that means? I mean, is that what grace is about? Actually, the word grace there and what he's, when he's talking about that and when you look at how God practices that, a more probably holistic view of the word, it means graciousness. You're really gracious in how you act. You extend grace. There's a graciousness to you. So in Ephesians 4, he picks up on this and he says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment that you may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, it's, it's interesting. You know, he mentions... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's only mentioned twice in the Bible, and both times have to do with how you speak, you know? So, you know, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. One of the things he's talking about here is, you know, he says, don't let words come out of your mouth all the time that don't actually help other people. So one of the real things, one of the real ways you're gracious with other people, how do you use your words? Do you use your words to build up, or do you use your words to tear down? Do you use your words to encourage or do you use your words to slander? Do you use your words to gossip or do you use your words to, you know, come alongside someone and help them? How, how do you use your words? 
But then he goes on and he says, um, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, a lot of the time we'll have some of those attitudes within us. And have you ever noticed nobody gets very much in trouble when they have those people like they understand one another. Like they'll say, oh, it's okay. It's okay. She's just bitter. It's, let's not worry about that. You know, well, you know, Paul's worried about that, you know. Or they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's just kind of, you know, they are kind of malicious, but that's just who they are. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, these are things that need to be out of our lives, you know. You need to be. Now, how do you get those out of your lives? By the grace of God, you begin to address those. You can't, just, you can't just develop a new attitude and a new heart or anything by just thinking and getting some information and say, well, I just am resolved to be different. No. What you do is as you begin to experience the grace of God in your life and you begin to realize who you are and how much he has loved you and how he is related to you, then... You can't help but relate differently to other people around you. It's just, it's just a matter of a total difference. And then lastly, he says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. One of the things that ought to characterize us is we ought to be people whose, whose lives are just, you know, full of forgiveness towards others. Why? Because that's how God's been towards us. And so, you know, one quote as we wrap up right there, you know, the quote by this guy, Andy Stanley, said this. He said, the more conscious I am of what God has yet to do in me, the less critical I am of what he has yet to do in others. What you're going to realize is this. You being gracious to other people in your relationships really begins to grow as a result of you figuring out, wow, that's how God is with me. And that's how he's been with me. And so, therefore, me being that way with others isn't a problem at all. Grace, it's a gift of God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But my encouragement to you is uh, let's begin to live that out this week. Let's begin to do that. Let me pray for us, and we'll welcome the band back up. Father, thanks for your grace, not only grace that... uh, allows us to be in a relationship with you, but grace that allows us to be growing and becoming more and more like you in our words, in our attitudes, in our actions throughout our lives. Thank you for that. Father, help us to live lives that are an honor to you and a blessing to others. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.